Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is sponsored by the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, the Griffith Asia Institute, the New York Southeast Asia Network, the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies, and the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre. Welcome to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Nicole Corrado, Professor of Political Sociology at the Centre for Deliberative Democracy and Global Governance at the University of Canberra, Australia, and co-host of the channel. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Sophia Young, an Honorary Research Fellow at the University College London. Sophia is the author of Strategies of Authoritarian Survival and Dissensus in Southeast Asia, Weak Men vs. Strong Men, published by Palgrave Macmillan in 2021. The book examines how Cambodia's ruling regime maintains power and how these strategies of regime survival extend to the cases of Indonesia and Malaysia. The book accounts for authoritarian survival by studying the cycle of interaction between government, business, and civil society. Hi, Sophia. Welcome. Well, thank you, Mike Nicole. Thanks for having me here to talk about the book in the New Book Network podcast. Fantastic. So let's start the interview on a biographical note, because before joining academia, you were working in international development and finance, which then informed your scholarly interest in Southeast Asia. So tell us about how this biographical context led you to writing the book. Well, uh, Nicole, yes, I started my career as a development practitioner who led a small team to advise international financial institutions to monitor what I call social environmental compliance of their investment and loans in small-scale and large-scale infrastructures in Southeast Asia, particularly in Cambodia before that, after I finished my bachelor. Then I went for my master, actually, that I continue working on on a different topic, but I end up doing the same thing as an advisor, what I call social environmental specialist, who like before, like providing advice to private uh, company, bank to deal with social environmental issue in the Mekong region at uh, this time. So of many approach that we use to minimize social environmental risk is a participation and dialogue between the different stakeholders, including civil society and also the grassroots community, the community that are affected by the investment or the project like that. Yeah, after working a while in that area, I was awarded scholarship to pursue my PhD at University of Melbourne. So I thought I, I was proposing to do something on decentralization in Southeast Asia, but the issue that I worked before my PhD study became quite a hot topic in 2000 like that in Southeast Asia, where investment uh, in land and natural resources were quite big and booming at that time. So I learned that many of uh, my hometown village actually faced the same problem. So land was like confiscated by the multinational corporation community protests to reclaim the land, human rights, rights of the people were violated, twice and Paul. It was surprising to me that I was advising many banks and in multinational corporations in other countries actually not to do harm to the local community, social environments like that. But 
I happened to my hometown, for example, in that say. So then I decided to work on change my topic, my PhD topic to work on the, this issue and trying to unpack like how the community protests, why some of them succeed while others did not. And, and yes, yeah, yeah, so I'm looking into that aspect uh, in from the corporate social environmental perspective. But when I start to delve deeper into the tracing the root cause, why there is such thing malpractice by the multinational corporation, it comes into the issue of political economy, institutionalisms, and also the regime's issue like that. Yeah. Well, it's fantastic to know that background knowledge because such extensive knowledge on land conflict, um, protests, and I guess the response of the state and business is very much evident in the book. The descriptions were really thick and vivid, so it only demonstrates that it's coming from a, a longer history or biography of your interest in the region and in your hometown specifically. So let's get to the, the core arguments of the book, because my reading is the book begins with the premise that the economy plays a central role in the durability of a ruling system. So obviously that is fairly uncontroversial, but in the case of Southeast Asia, it's the extractive economic institutions in particular that's essential in maintaining the regime's power. So I guess, first of all, tell us what you mean by extractive economic institutions and tell us how these institutions are instrumental in sustaining the ruling regime in Cambodia. Yeah, I think as you can see in the book, so what I mean by extractive economic institutions, or what I also call rentier's economic institution, is a ruling regime institutional process designed and set up of the economic system and policy that aim at building wealth of the rich and elite people by marginalizing uh, poor communities like that. So such wealth accumulation is allowed by the formal institutions, which is controlled by the ruling elite in the regime. So whereby the relationship between the public and private sectors blur. So this institution can also be observed mostly in developing nations whose regime often characterized by a hybrid electoral authoritarianism, semi-democracy, hybrid democracy, something like that. So you can observe all that kind of like a extractive economic institution over there in this regime. So yes, the ultimate aim of this extractive economic system is to support the ruling elite and the leader to maintain in powers. But that also marginalized what they call the opposition group, including civil society and also parties like that. So yes, it's about being how to generate wealth and use that wealth to maintain the ruling system by extracting rent from different resources and natural resources to support that system for longer term periods. I also find it fascinating that you also use the term neo-patrimonial to describe the regime, which I believe is a term used to describe countries in Africa, but you're using the concept in Cambodia. So I just wonder what you think is the analytical strength of using that concept? What kind of dynamics does it elucidate? The term I use that become when I taught Southeast Asian study, then we look into the cultural and root cause and the history of development in Southeast Asia. Then you got to understand that Southeast Asian is built by, based on that kind of system long years ago, that the connection between, for example, the work by James Scott looking to pattern and client network in the cultural sectors and also the elite at the agricultural sector. That also provide a lot of uh, implication to the wider politics like that in Southeast Asia. 
that within the neo-patrimonialism, actually the term used in Africa, but we can see this is in a similar system in Southeast Asia as well, that one of which, as I mentioned before, is about pattern clan network between those with the most powerful, those with the richest, those with the weaker system like that. So that become one of the interesting things that contribute to the book that I have framed within the context of ruling authoritarianism and their durabilities. Right. And of course, these concepts also map on other Southeast Asian countries like Malaysia and Indonesia, which were featured in your book. So the logic of using extractive economic institutions worked in Malaysia throughout the book. Actually, you referred to Mahathir as a smart strongman. I'm using air quotes here. Our our listeners couldn't see me. Um, You described him as a smart strongman for outsmarting his challengers for decades. And I think from my reading of of your book, what's distinct about the Malaysian case study is how Mahathir's use of rentier economy is also legitimized through charismatic rhetoric. So tell us more about this dynamic. The term smart strongman is quite contested by other scholars in that sense, but I prefer to use that given how smart he is actually, Mahathir, when he stepped on without any issue right, compared to Indonesia, right? When when you are ruling the country for long, when you step down, you, you always face a problem, like you might be end up in the prison or might be end up charged by the court or any upcoming leaders. So as I mentioned earlier, that renters or extractive economic system is often practiced in a country where elections were regularly held, as you saw, but the election is the way to legitimize the ruling leaders to cling on to powers regardless whether that election is free or free or not is also the process to achieve what they call legitimacy. So it is essential for the ruling leaders. The way to cultivate such electoral legitimacy is to distribute rent actually generating from extractive economic institutions that we mentioned before. So that to mobilize the grassroots support. So this including funding local development, local member of the party activists uh, within the network or the network that you discussed earlier, the neo-patrimonialism networking of the patron client network within that kind of political party system. So this type of like support to local development is known mostly what they call gift giving to the electorate in terms of infrastructure development in exchange for votes like that. So what is interesting in, in Indonesia is, and also in the Malaysia is that Mahathir is quite different from others. So not only did he extract rent for his winning coalition, that I mean those people who contribute to maintaining powers of the Mahathir, he had also ensured that the rent benefit the society and economy. So such benefit including better economic growth compared to those counterpart country in the region Indonesia and Cambodia, or even in the Philippines like that. So the GDP per capita during Mahathir were increasing significantly and leading to poverty reductions. And that gave um, Mahathir a lot of charismatics and also practice uh, to get some sort of legitimacy for his powers during his office. So that is the way how it worked. And now also working in other countries as well. Oh, that's fascinating. So Mahathir's strategy is more of like an inclusive rather than exclusionary gift giving, which is the source of his legitimacy. And we don't see that necessarily with other regimes in the region. Is that correct? Yep, that's correct. So economic growth is one of the source of charismatic that we can observe in Malaysia. If you ask Malaysian people, they will appreciate that, okay, he had done quite good enough to make the country one of the leading economic growth in the region, not to compare with Singapore. 
Right. And of course, the book also covers Indonesia. And one of the insights you put forward there is that the leadership of the Suharto regime was more repressive compared to Mahathir. So I wonder how this affected the kind of grassroots mobilization that we see in Indonesia. Yes, in Indonesia, under Suharto was quite oppressive. Yes, and many people know that. So, but Suharto did not appear to be smart, but a strong man with the armed force. I mean, not smart compared to Mahathir in terms of economic development, but he is quite a strong man in terms of using armed force. So that had a lot of influence on how grassroots mobilization worked. That in my book, I observed that there are many cases where grassroots mobilization achieved the objective in Indonesia during Suharto. But one of the things that we observe is about the macroeconomic level objective or macro level objective of the mobilization wasn't able to achieve by the small, many grassroots mobilization protests. So the influence uh, before 1990, something like that wasn't quite good enough. But we can see that there is a, a macro level, external macro level, that at the time, especially the economic crisis, the external debt that allow that actually imposed Suato to step down, he didn't manage well enough in terms of external debt to foreign countries. So the country relied on foreign investment, foreign investors, and also export and also global economic system in general term. Then when the economic crisis happened in 1997, 1998, it caused the whole extractive economic system collapse in terms of become quite trouble at the time. So that kind of matters actually support the grassroots mobilization to gain leverage to attain what they envision like regime change or leadership change. So we can see this is one of the factors that actually stimulates some sort of like grassroots mobilization to gain more power than before. In the meantime, the state institutions or the regime system was also weak at that time and then allow what they call opportunity for the local community to take the advantage and also to leverage the influence on the regime change as well as the leadership change in Indonesia. Right, and I think this is the point that I want to clarify with you as well because I get the argument that economic crises uh, create opportunities for grassroots mobilization to advocate for regime change. But of course, one of the usual critiques uh, with the scholarly work that foregrounds political economy is the seeming under appreciation of the political agency of grassroots political actors. So in the book, you call grassroots communities as weak men. And I wonder whether that was purely rhetorical to sharpen the distinction of weak men from strong men leaders, or whether you do take the conceptual position that it is the macroeconomic forces like economic crises that are deterministic of the success of grassroots movements. So I suppose my question is, what is the book's account of human agency among grassroots movements in the face of broader political and economic forces? Yeah, I use the term to a weak man versus a strong man to distinguish between the two. But when you talk about weak men, they're not always weak in that sense. But in a context where we study Southeast Asia, you will see a lot of weak men in terms of pattern client network that these poor community rely on the economic system being set up by the controlling system or the economic system like that. So that's why I call them as weak men, while a strong man is those people who can more well and powers in the region. 
So yes, uh, coming back to your question about the human agency in the face of broader political and economic uh, force, to me, I believe that there is a contributing factors, one of which is about the macroeconomic force, which has been proved, as I mentioned earlier, that or maybe at the moment in the global pandemic at the moment does affect economy in general and also the leadership of the ruling system as well. So human agency play a very important role in this book or even in the global political economic force. Decision actually of the individual activists, for example, or community that joins force with other local or international civil society or NGO in general term is the performance of the actor that actually respond to the issue of the broader economic and also political force. So in the book, I use the term like, for example, grassroots community activists in general that have taken part in global supply chain, for example, in the book that saying that they are struggling to uh, protest against the global system of rain extraction. For example, you can see in Malaysia, in Indonesia, part of Cambodia that palm oil, sugarcane production, or any other non-agricultural product, including garment industries that play along the supply chain because this supply, they produce in Southeast Asia, but they're exporting to other countries in the West. So the activists and actors in this sense use the agency to trace the supply chain to tackle the kind of global cooperation who monopolize the global economic system. So such decision of the, these actors are cross-country community linked to the international political system. So as in the book, I mentioned about that people protest against the European Union that provide some sort of like threat preference to the developing country. That kind of threat preference actually support the ruling uh, regime to remain in power because they can generate the benefit from that kind of global economic system as well. So that kind of decisions of the human agency is playing part within not only the local level, but also in the broader global economic system to to resist again kind of like top-down approach of uh, globalization that affect not only the well-being of the local community, but also support the ruling regime to cling on to power for more than decades. Right. Well, thanks for that clarification. It's certainly inspiring to see it from that perspective. But also reflecting back on the two case studies uh, you presented about Cambodian grassroots mobilization, because to me, the findings are quite confronting confronting in the sense that it caused some form of intellectual discomfort because, I mean, I'm a sociologist, I tend to celebrate all of these achievements of social movements, but your findings really put power dynamics into proper context. So I remember that in one chapter, you presented a case study of a failed social movement who protested against a sugar baron who has close ties to the regime. I think this is the one that you mentioned a while ago about mobilizing the supply chain, right? So despite the international character of that movement's campaign, they were unsuccessful in getting the outcome they want, although they received concessions from the sugar baron in the form of cash compensation. It was just a way of placating their demands. On the other hand, Another chapter was talking about an indigenous group who used violent methods to get their demands heard, and they were successful in getting the outcomes they want. But it's not because of their tactics of resistance, but it was because of the weak ties between the European investor, who was the target of their protest and the regime. Um, So for me, it's quite confronting because it feels like, okay, no matter how much grassroots movements do, how creative they get, ultimately, it's the neo-patrimonial ties among the elites that will determine their success, right? Like the sugar baron was closer to the regime. 
Hence, the social movement was relatively unsuccessful. And then the second case study shows how the social movement was successful, but it was because the European investor had weaker ties to the regime. So help me out here, Sophia. What, what is the lesson that activists and citizens can learn from these two case studies? Yeah, I think it's quite confrontation to say that because, as you said, like, okay, quite discomfort to the civil society or grassroots mobilization. But it depends on how people define in terms of achieving the objective as a, an outcome, as a success on failures of the mobilizations. But what can be drawn from this lesson learned is that the activists and also civil society need to understand the power dynamic at the uh, not only the regional and national level, but also the global level as well. Because even though a country actually linked to another political and economic system, but the power remain at the local level. Not many things has influenced. For example, one of the connections that I present in the book actually looking into whether international supply chain approach really influenced the local politics or not, that not always mean the case because, for example, in one of the cases saying recently that there is a tariff imposed on the trade preference import from Cambodia to the European Union. But that didn't change anything because the European Union asked that you need to uh, restore democracy, you need to address the land grabbing, anything like that, right? But it didn't work. The government committee is saying that, okay, yeah, it's okay because the trade uh, preference scheme is going to lose any time in the future. So losing now is okay. So don't we need to, don't to change anything? We don't need to change anything. So that is an, a signal saying that the local powers, uh, the elite and also the ruling system is more powerful than the internet international advocacy network that intend to leverage international to influence on domestic politics. So that is not always the case because the local power dynamic is quite strong compared to that sense. And that linked to the issue what they call the sovereignties, the international interference in the political economic system of a domestic politics is not not thing that activists as well as civil society have looked into that. Right. I think that's a very powerful um, reminder as well for grassroots activist movements and their global um, alliances. Sophia, let's switch gears a bit because I also want to ask you about your approach to conducting fieldwork in Cambodia. So your book is full of primary data from your interviews with NGO directors, uh, as well as focus group discussions uh, with villagers. The footnotes are super interesting to me because it just demonstrates the diversity of the respondents in your research. So can you share some of your fieldwork strategies in gaining the trust of your respondents to discuss what to me seems like politically sensitive matters? Yeah, it is an interesting issue that to do observation research in a country that is politically sensitive in Southeast Asia, especially in Cambodia. So yeah, I approach to do that as a Cambodian, actually, uh, you used to work in a region and you get to know the people, you get to know civil society. And at the beginning, to do that kind of sensitive issue is that to build trust with the local community. So I spent almost two months actually to reach out to these people, to introduce ourselves, myself, and also to embed myself, immerse myself within the community at least two months before I start interviewing people so people know that what I'm doing, what is the purpose of doing that. So ethical practice is also one that we need to adhere to because 
declare ourselves properly saying that we are not coming here as an NGO, a civil society activist or political actors or any member of any political party at that time or not. So declare yourself, you know, and then gain trust with the local community, one of which is about with the local policemen. So get to know them before you start doing anything because I was also questioned by the local policemen saying, why are you doing this research? What are you doing? What is the purpose? So we have a letter of support from the university that we translate into Khmer saying that, okay, this research will not serve as anything in terms of political affairs, something like that. So for solely for purpose of academic purpose. Yeah, as a Cambodian, so we know how to navigate around to different cultural process. For example, you get a drink with the local policeman and then also with the local council and also with the activists and other NGOs. So then you get along to the process, then you are able to get the data. So many other issues, for example, interviewing with the senior government official is also quite challenging as well. You need to submit the letters, spend long hours, but through different navigation or networks saying that there are some members of the party actually uh, interested in academic work as well. So you go and talk to them, okay, hello, Dr. This and That, or His Excellency This and That. I think in a similar way in other countries, in Malaysia, and Indonesia, or in the Philippines as well, address their title is one of the most important things, <laughs> appreciation, and to get them on board to discuss about what is their biography, something like that, yeah. Yeah, I mean, interview people, not always about straight to the question that you want to ask, but about their biography and then how they struggle in their lives and how they get to the position, for example, at the senior level in the ruling party, something that is also one interesting thing to get started with the, the like question like that. Yeah. Well, I can only imagine how much thought went into your interview guide, right? To go through that process of gaining trust and asking questions that I suppose give comfort or allow your, your respondents to feel comfortable with your questions. Would you consider yourself an insider or an outsider in this research? Because obviously, yes, you're Cambodian, but you're representing a foreign institution as well. Was there a particular dynamic in your insider-outsider role as a researcher? As I mentioned in my book, so that there was an issue in, in our neighborhood, but I chose not to do research in my neighborhood because I want to provide insight from the external person because they're going to be biased saying that, okay, are you an activist that writing this book based on your personal history? So that's why I choose to do different case study in other country as well as outside my hometown. So I consider myself as mostly linked between the external person who can internal inside to interpret that kind of phenomenon. Right. So this is a sole authored book. And of course, many people made the book possible. And that includes the Cambodian Scholars Network. So as founder of this network, I want to ask you about the value of maintaining such network and how these kinds of intellectual linkages advance and shape your thinking and the trajectory of Cambodian studies and Southeast Asian studies more broadly. Yeah, I established that kind of network in order to mobilize young Cambodian academics that want to pursue that academic interest to advance their understanding about research methodology, how to publish papers, how to debate in academic ways. So it has been like almost two years now and then it became quite interesting because a lot of young scholars come together and learn together and then they some of them actually initiate any project, publication by their own. That is the thing that been quite interesting. 
And then the network also, we discuss different topics. So within the network, we have, for example, the reading group that focus actually on civil society in Southeast Asia. And then we want to expand the Cambodian thought, not only just about Cambodian case study, but also to look at the broader level and how we can use that kind of international framework or maybe general framework to analyze not only the case in Cambodia, but also in Southeast Asia, like that. So, yeah, it has been quite interesting. And then what we want to do in our group is to uh, ensure that Cambodian scholar is gaining uh, international representation in the international stake of uh, international community of the Cambodian study or Southeast Asian study. That's actually very inspiring. And I hope it gets replicated uh, in other networks of Southeast Asian scholars. And Sophia, finally, I would be remiss not to ask you what you think are the most exciting developments in studying strongmen in Southeast Asia. One of the interesting things that I'm looking into is about the link between the regional power, saying U.S. and also China. One is interesting thing that China, how China linked to the strongman in the region is one of the exciting development in Southeast Asia. So that needs to do a lot of research. And I will pursue doing that in the longer term or in the coming work that I'm going to do. Sounds exciting. Sophia Young, thank you for joining us on New Books in Southeast Asian Studies to discuss strategies of authoritarian survival and dissensus in Southeast Asia, weak men versus strong men. You've been listening to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This has been one of hundreds of conversations about other Southeast Asia-related books on the channel. You can download or stream these interviews free of charge from the New Books Network website or subscribe through your favorite podcast app.